Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, listeners. I hope this finds you well. No news to share with you this week, so let's have a brief recap of the last episode and then jump straight back into the story. Having fallen off the roof at La Fantasia, Lydia killed a policewoman for sustenance and then dragged herself through the sewers of Malaga, where she slept a long, healing sleep throughout the day before emerging above ground in downtown Malaga at night to commandeer a taxi to take her home. The poor driver didn't get a tip, he didn't even get a fare. But what he did get was Lydia's teeth in his neck. Poor fellow. And now, as we enter episode 15, we find ourselves in the aftermath of that encounter and what Lydia did next in... Underwood and Flinch Season 4 Underground Written and performed for podcast by Mike Bennett This podcast is intended for an adult audience Episode 2 Lydia stood in the shower and sighed with relief as the stink filth and gore of her horrendous journey from La Fantasia began to wash away. She had drained the taxi driver to his death and afterwards had begun the tedious business of cleaning up the mess. Her new strength on lifting the driver's body from the bath had delighted her. The corpse was no heavier than she imagined a shop mannequin would be. She'd carried the body outside to the taxi the front of the house was way back from the road and obscured by trees, so she had no fear that she'd be observed. She shut the body in the boot, making a mental note to wash the bloody handprints off, and went back inside. There, she saw that the body had dripped blood and incarnadine water on the white floor tiles the length of the corridor. With a sigh, she traipsed down to the kitchen to dig out a mop and bucket, then started the mopping up. She'd started in the bathroom, where, besides coating the bath, gouts of blood had also spurted up the wall tiles and out over the floor. It was frustrating work. No matter how often she changed the bucket water, it would turn crimson again whenever the mop was returned to it. It was more like she was trying to paint the floor tiles red 
than clean them. All the while she struggled with this, in her worried imagination, the clock was ticking. She desperately wanted to be away from Malaga and out to the Benson's house in El Messina before sunrise. She was counting on Cynthia and Gerald to protect her through the daylight hours, doing for her what her family had done for Underwood for generations. No doubt they'd be hopping with enthusiasm for her to grant them what Cynthia liked to call the dark gift of vampirism, but that would have to wait. Right now, in the absence of anyone else, she was counting on the Bensons to serve as her guardians. She'd continued to mop, rinse and scream occasionally, until eventually the tiles were reasonably white again. Then she tipped away the last bucket of pink water and got into the shower. Now, as she soaped away the blood and the stink of the sewer, her mind turned to David and what might have befallen him. He'd survived, she was certain of that, though whether he'd managed to escape or had been arrested by the police, she couldn't know. If he had escaped, he'd almost certainly now be at Casa Underwood. She'd need to check on that. She could drop in on her way up to the Bensons and give him an unpleasant surprise. Maybe she'd kill him there and then, or maybe she'd throw him in the boot with the taxi driver and save him for later. However, if, on the other hand, he'd been arrested, then she'd have to wait for her revenge. She didn't imagine she'd have to wait for long, though. The sect wouldn't leave their golden boy languishing in jail for more than a day or two. Ildefonso Hernandez would have him out on bail in no time, acquitted or otherwise. Then David would probably go for a drink somewhere in the town to celebrate his freedom, and when he came rolling home, she would be there to meet him, waiting in the shadows of Casa Underwood. She smiled at the thought of killing him. When she did it, she wanted him to be in his own mind, not fascinated, but fully aware. Maybe she'd strangle him. That would be nice. She imagined her powerful fingers closing around his throat, feeling him struggling futilely beneath her as his tongue began to protrude from his mouth and his face turned purple. She laughed and felt better again. She put her head under the water flow and ran her fingers through her new hair. It didn't need conditioner. It was perfect. But what, she wondered, might David have told the police if he had been arrested? She pictured him in police custody, two detectives circling him and an interpreter sitting beside him, relating their words and his responses. There was no way he was going to tell them the truth. They'd think he was insane. No, he'd probably just lay all the blame on the Russians. She doubted also that the Mullins women, assuming they had survived, would have said anything to contradict his story. Underwood would have shaped their minds to his will, whatever that will might have been, before he came back up into the club to drag her up onto the sun-blazing rooftop. That thought made her stop her lathering of herself and stand still, reliving in her memory the moment she had fallen from Underwood's burning embrace. 
He had been dying, maybe on the verge of death at that very moment. Surely he hadn't survived. Had he? No, she thought, resuming her soaping motions. He was dead. He had to be. But you aren't, whispered a voice in her mind. No, she thought, but I didn't want to be. That's the difference. I wanted to live. He wanted to die. Content, her mind went back to David. A real, rather than imagined, problem. He was almost certain to have told the lawyer, Hernandez, about what had happened, who in turn would have told Daventry and West in London. Now they would be in the process of contacting the sect worldwide and letting them know the tragic news. How the members wouldn't, after all, be getting a visit from the master they had waited so long to see risen from the grave, because she, Lydia Flinch, had betrayed and murdered him. To say she was now persona non grata was an understatement. Damn it! She turned off the shower and stepped out. She wrapped a towel around herself and bundled her hair up in another. It was all David's fault. From the moment he'd arrived back in Spain, it was almost as if his sole purpose for returning had been to wreck all her plans. She went into the bedroom and screamed in anger, slamming the door so hard that the plaster fell from around the doorframe. She threw herself down on the dressing-table chair and glared at her reflection in the mirror. She could sometimes see a family resemblance between her and David around the eyes. She stared into those eyes now. "'I will have my revenge on you, brother,' she said as she began blasting her hair with a hairdryer. "'You think this is over just because Underwood is gone?' She smiled. "'Oh, no. This isn't over until I say it is.' She remembered the two of them burying Beltran and Anna out in the olive groves of Casa Underwood, shoveling the cold dirt down onto Beltran's face. No, this won't be over until I've taken everything from you that you've taken from me. Love, hope, family and sect. <laughs> she laughed, cheered by her hatred. I will burn your fucking world to the ground, David. And then I'll feed you the ashes. When her hair was almost dry, she went through to the kitchen to fix herself a drink. She browsed through the bottles and opted for a glass of Rioja. She uncorked the bottle and poured a tall glass, which she then took with her back to the bedroom. She returned to her seat in front of the dressing table and started brushing her hair. As she brushed, still delighting over the condition of her hair, she started going through her mental rolodex of possible connections within or without the sect who actually might help her. The sect in Spain were out of the question. She and her brother John before her had spent years convincing these people that Underwood was Satan's dark angel on earth. But now she'd destroyed that angel, and Ildefonso Hernandez, good friends with everyone in the Spanish sect, would have wasted no time in passing on the news. This was unfortunate, but not the end of the world. 
and though, while Daventry and West would almost certainly be contacting sect members internationally by now, it was she who had made most of those people sect in the first place. Arthur's generation of devotees had withered and died. In his declining years, he'd only really been concerned with maintaining a strong presence in Spain, people who would be of immediate use to him. John hadn't been much better. For him, the hereditary generation of sect, the sons and daughters of the now withered generation of Arthur, were enough. The membership of a next generation of sect, John had always believed, was for the resurrected Lord Underwood himself to decide. But Lydia had always seen this as lazy and short-sighted. She had argued that the sect should be kept strong and vital, and she wasn't content to let the family firm weaken under John's misguided leadership. She had gone out into the world and made her own connections, bringing new blood to the sect. Once the obvious benefits of these individuals were apparent to John, he'd welcomed the newcomers, but even after that, he'd never lifted a finger himself to secure new people. Seeking and finding new members had become Lydia's unofficial role, but it was one she was never thanked for. Over the years, she had found dozens of people, all highly useful, and many with power and influence. These were her connections. Their very presence in the sect was her doing. Yet now, thanks to David the Telltale, Daventry and West would be poisoning those very contacts against her, even if she was supposedly dead. But would it work? On some, maybe, those who really believed that Underwood was some kind of satanic angel— but in her experience, the average urbane Satanist's first loyalty was to themselves and the furtherance of their own best interests, and she, she realised, could now be that furtherance. While she didn't have a sect as such, she was a vampire. She could now do things for them that previously only Underwood himself could have done— she could control the minds of their enemies. That was something you couldn't put a price on. Indeed, she could even eliminate those enemies altogether. However, she was still persona non grata. Gaining the trust and allegiance of those who now believed her traitorous was something that would take time, and she needed help now. But then again, she thought... She was limiting herself by considering only the sect. She knew plenty of others, people she'd tried to recruit for the sect, but who had simply been uninterested. For them, the idea of worshipping a seemingly desiccated cadaver in a coffin somewhere in the back of the Spanish beyond had been, not to put too fine a point on it, quaint but absurd. At that moment... The face of one such man rose in her mind. She'd met him in London at a meeting of a coven. What was his name? Jack? John? They'd clicked and enjoyed a brief affair over a few wet and wintry days some six or seven years ago. He'd worked for MI6. Very handsome, but very married. He would have been a great score for the sect and certainly she'd tried to land him. 
but when she told him of Underwood, Satan's angel on earth, he'd merely smiled and said he knelt before another. Another? She tried to inveigle details of this mysterious entity from him, but he wouldn't be drawn. That was what had ended their little tryst. Nothing irked Lydia more than a man she couldn't master. Though one thing she had gleaned from him was that he was part of a group, bigger than a coven, something she'd instinctively felt might be a secret society, a network similar to the sect, but with this mysterious other at its head. However, unlike the sect, this group weren't looking for new members. James. Her memory returned his name to her. James Harrington. That was it. She must still have his number somewhere. If not in a book, then certainly on an old SIM card. Something she wouldn't have bothered transferring to later phones. She pulled out the bottom drawer of the dresser where she kept her old phones, chargers and other outdated but still working gadgets. From the tangle of wires, she pulled an old Nokia phone. Its face was cracked, and she remembered it had fallen onto the tiled floor of her kitchen in the house in London. In fact, it had been on the same trip that she'd met James. He had been there with her. She could see him now, showing it to her, telling her that it wasn't the end of the world. It still worked. And it did still work. So now, since she needed a phone, she took out the charger and plugged it in. She smiled at her reflection in the dressing-table mirror. She would call James and arrange a meeting. She was confident he'd jump at the chance. Breaking the affair off had been her idea. He'd been gutted. Clearly, he'd thought she was going to be a long-term squeeze. Good enough for his bed, but not good enough for his secret society. Well... I think we'll have to talk about that again, James, she said, watching as in the mirror her canine teeth lengthened at her will. My powers of persuasion are considerably more than they used to be. Once she was dressed, Lydia was ready to call the Bensons and give them the good news. She lit a cigarette and found their number on her now-charged phone. It was just after 1am, but they had a phone in their bedroom. After four rings, the call was answered. Hello? Hello? said Cynthia, bleary and affronted. It's me. Lydia? Oh my God, you're alive! Cynthia blurted before turning from the phone and announcing, Gerald, it's Lydia. She's alive. I told you so. Lydia could hear Gerald remonstrating dozily in the background that it was in fact he who had told her she would be alive. Cynthia silenced him with a curt, Oh, shut up! before coming back on the line. Lydia, oh my God, I can't believe it, darling. We saw the news on television and when we didn't hear from you, we... We feared the worst. Hmm. You mean you did? I told you she'd be... Shut up, Gerald, said Cynthia. Actually, it almost was the worst, said Lydia. But Satan must have been looking out for me. I'm at my villa in Malaga. But what happened, darling? Did you escape before the shooting started? 
No, I was in the thick of it. You'd have been proud of me, Cynthia. Say, and you're all right? You didn't get hurt? Oh, I got hurt all right. I got shot in the chest. Cynthia gasped. Oh, my God! You what? Got shot in... In the chest, yes, with a shotgun. What's she saying? said Gerald in the background, before he gave a cry of pain, no doubt the result of a jab from Cynthia's elbow. But surely, Lydia, said Cynthia, if you'd been shot in the chest with a shotgun, wouldn't you be dead? Oh, yes, most definitely, if I were still human. Still human? said Cynthia. But are you saying... You succeeded? Lydia smiled. Did you ever doubt me? Oh, my God, Lydia, I don't know what to say. That's bloody fantastic. But what about Lord Underwood? Is he... Dead? Lydia drew on her cigarette and inspected it thoughtfully as she rolled it between her finger and thumb. I think so. He tried to kill us both by walking us out onto a rooftop at sunrise... I managed to escape, but he... Well, as far as I know, he went on with it. You mean you didn't see? Well, no, dear. My eyes were on fire at the time. Oh, my God! You were on fire? On fire? Yes, Cynthia. That's what the sun does to you when you're a vampire. Bloody hell, but you're all right now. Oh, yes. I'm completely restored, though it's taken some blood to get me back into shape. You mean you've been feeding on victims? Well, I didn't go down to the local blood bank and ask for a couple of glasses of A-positive, did I? Yes, I've been feeding on victims. I've got one here now, actually. He made a right bloody mess, I can tell you. I'm going to give the place one last quick going over with bleach and hot water before I come up to you. Shouldn't take too long. You, You mean you're coming up here? Yes, I hope that's all right. Of course it's all right, darling. Uh, do, you, do you mean to stay? Yes, I want to avoid my places for a while. David either got away from La Fantasia or got arrested. If he's been arrested, then there's always a chance that he's told the police I had some involvement. Unlikely, but I want to play it safe. Oh, actually, I think he has been arrested, said Cynthia. It was on the news. They said an Englishman was arrested at the scene. Ah, right. Oh, well, at least I know that much. But what about Miguel? Is he with you? No, dear. Miguel didn't make it. Oh, darling, no. I'm afraid so. Underwood killed him. What is it? asked Gerald. Miguel, said Cynthia aside. He's dead. Is she sure? said Gerald. What about that chap on the television? What's that? said Lydia. What chap on television? What's Gerald talking about? Oh, well, said Cynthia. We were watching the news the morning after the, you know, the shootout. And there was one of those rolling live streams they do on the news these days, you know, with the endless commentary. I couldn't follow a word of it, of course. It was all in Spanish. But we were able to read the ticker at the bottom reasonably well. Yes, yes. Lydia interrupted impatiently. Get to the point, will you? 
Oh, sorry. Yes, well, uh, there was a chap who looked a bit like Miguel being brought out of the club on a stretcher. Uh, most of the bodies coming out were covered, you know, dead. But this chap wasn't, and, well, as soon as we saw him, Gerald shouted out, Hey, that looks like Miguel. But really, dear, the camera was so far away. A helicopter, you know, and it was a very shaky picture. It could have been any young Spaniard, you know. Dark hair, olive skin. No, said Lydia. The only Spaniard in the fighting was Miguel. Oh, then, yes, I, I suppose it certainly could have been Miguel. But it's good news. At least he's still alive. Jesus Christ! Whereabouts did they take him? said Lydia, crushing out her cigarette and looking at her watch. Well, I, I don't know. A hospital, I suppose. Lydia was stunned by the remark. You mean you didn't call around to check? Well, no. I, I didn't want to seem interested, you know. I mean, if it was Miguel, then the police would have started asking questions, wouldn't they? Lydia could picture Cynthia now, nervous, perhaps glancing round to Gerald for support while he looked back at her with a semi-bewildered expression, unsure of precisely what she was talking about. "'Jesus Christ, Cynthia, this is Miguel we're talking about. He's one of us. Weren't you even curious?' "'Oh, well, of course I was. Uh, but I was also afraid. You can understand that, can't you, Lydia?' I really didn't think it was a good idea to start asking questions. After all, it's not like we could have actually done anything to help him, is it? All we would have done is to put ourselves in danger. You would have phoned here tonight and we wouldn't be here. We'd be at a police station with desk lamps shining in our faces and angry men shouting at us in Spanish. Lydia gritted her teeth. Annoyed as she was with her, Cynthia had a point. She resisted the urge to throw the phone at the wall and instead drew a breath and held it for a moment. Then she said, OK, all right, maybe you're right, but I still need to know what hospital they've taken him to. Well, it's probably on the news websites by now, said Cynthia. Yes, of course, I'll check, and then I'll go and get him and get both of us up to you before the sun comes up. It'll be cutting it fine, but I think I can do it. Oh, God, do be careful, darling. Wouldn't you rather just come here now and go down early tomorrow night? No, I have to get him out of there now. They could be shining desk lamps in his face and shouting at him in Spanish, and I don't think he'd appreciate that any more than you would. Cynthia balked a little at the jibe, but said, So what will you do? Contact someone in the sect? Oh, God, no. Don't even think about the sect any more. David won't have wasted any time telling Ildefonso Hernandez what I did to Underwood. That makes the sect our enemies, so don't contact any of them. Oh, God, I didn't think of that. So, if the sect aren't an option, then how will you be able to get Miguel out? He's almost certainly going to have a police card. Oh, don't worry about that, darling. You're already forgetting. I'm a vampire. He could be in a vault under the Pentagon, and I'd still be able to get him out if I put my mind to it. After ending her call to Cynthia, Lydia went online and scanned the papers till she located the hospital where the survivors of the La Fantasia shooting had been taken. She phoned them claiming to be the mother of a young man who had been at the club that night and who hadn't come home since. 
Feigning sobs of fear and anguish, she gave a rough description of Miguel. The woman at the other end then told her that two men had been brought in. One had died in the ambulance en route. The other, a young Spanish man who matched her description, was still alive, though in a critical condition. The woman wanted to know Lydia's name and the name of her son so they could identify him. But with a cry of despair for her poor boy, Lydia hung up. Five minutes later, with the policewoman's gun in the glove compartment and her sack of bloody clothing joining the dead driver in the boot, Lydia pulled out of her drive and headed for the hospital. When she arrived, Wary of possible TV cameras, she entered the hospital wearing a headscarf and sunglasses. The reception area was quiet, just a few people waiting, presumably for news of sick loved ones. They glanced over at her as she walked in, perhaps wondering why on earth anyone would be wearing sunglasses at two in the morning. Lydia ignored them and went to the desk where a middle-aged nurse looked up from where she was writing on a form. Hello, she said in Spanish. Can I help you? Yes, I rang earlier, Lydia replied, glancing around casually for CCTV cameras and seeing none. You have my son. He was brought in yesterday morning from the nightclub shooting. The nurse stood up. Oh, yes, senora. Please, I need your name and the name of your son. Never mind that, said Lydia, removing her sunglasses and meeting the woman's eyes. Where is he? The woman's face went slack, and after a moment's hesitation, she said, He is in room 29. What's his condition? He suffered severe hypovolemic shock. What does that mean? It is massive blood loss. He's in a coma. He's had a heart attack. His kidneys have been damaged. Doctors don't expect him to live. Is he under police guard? Yes. Only one. He sits outside his room. Thank you. Now get back to your work and forget you ever saw me. Understand? The woman said she did, and Lydia put her sunglasses back on and walked briskly away. The nurse lingered in her standing position for a moment, staring at the space that Lydia had vacated. Then she looked down and saw her paperwork. She picked up her pen, curious perhaps as to why she wasn't holding it, then sat down and returned to work. Lydia walked straight up to the policeman outside the door of room 29. He was too busy with his phone to register her presence until she was standing right before him. He looked up at her and she took off her sunglasses. She put him to sleep, then went into the room. It was a private room with only one bed. She checked it for cameras and, on seeing none, she went to the bedside. She felt a wave of relief on seeing it was indeed Miguel. An oxygen mask was fitted over his nose and mouth, and there were innumerable tubes and wires attached to his chest and arms. If it weren't for the beeping of the heart monitoring machine, she would have thought he was dead, so sallow and cadaverous was his complexion. She took his hand. Miguel? Miguelito? It's me, Lydia. Oh, you poor darling... What did he do to you? But she knew only too well. Underwood had drained him almost to death. Perhaps he had thought he was dead. 
She couldn't imagine why he would have deliberately spared him. But whatever the circumstances, one thing was sure. The vampire's bite would have infected him. All she needed to do now was to complete the process that Underwood had started. She took Miguel beneath the shoulders and hefted him up so he was almost in a sitting position. Then she removed his oxygen mask and eased down his jaw, opening his mouth. She bit into her wrist, tasting her own blood as it flowed into her mouth. Then she brought her bleeding wrist to Miguel's mouth and settled it between his lips. Blood quickly began to trickle from the sides of his mouth, and she withdrew her wrist so she could adjust his head, easing it back and prompting the swallow reflex. "'That's it, Miguel,' she said, returning her wrist to his mouth. "'Drink, darling. Drink and come back to me.' Again blood spilled from his mouth, and again she tipped his head back to encourage him to swallow. "'Come on, Miguel. It's Lydia, darling. Can you hear me?' Then she noticed the steady beeping of the heart monitor begin to quicken. That's good, she thought. It's working. He must be coming round. She continued to feed him slowly and carefully. But now the beeping of the machine was getting faster, as if under the fathoms of his coma Miguel were running for his life. Yet his face was serene, without a flicker of movement on its features. Lydia looked over at the heart monitor's angrily zigzagging red line. "'No,' she said. "'This isn't right. Why is it doing that? What is it, Miguel? What, are you allergic or something?' The beeping of the machine was now frantic. Lydia could feel her panic rising. A nurse would come. Surely a nurse would come. She withdrew her wrist from Miguel and put it to her mouth. She had to hide, and she didn't want a trail of blood leading to where she had hidden. She looked around, but there was nowhere other than behind the door. She could hide there and take the nurse by surprise when she came in. Quickly she moved and got there, just in time. A nurse came in and stopped in horror on seeing the blood all over Miguel's face and bed. Dios mia! Then the frantic beeping of Miguel's heart monitor suddenly cut out and was replaced by a single constant tone. "'Miguel?' said Lydia. The nurse turned. "'Who are you?' she demanded in Spanish. Lydia fixed her eyes and replied in Spanish. "'Shut up and save him! Do it now!' The nurse stared blankly at her. "'Come on!' Lydia snapped. "'Don't just stand there! Save him!' The nurse turned and went over to Miguel's bedside. I don't understand what has happened to him, she said dreamily. He's fucking died, obviously, said Lydia. Get a pair of those electric chest paddle things you use and give him a jolt for Christ's sake. She was about to slap the nurse when the heart machine gave a beep, then another, then another, and then a regular rhythm resumed, with the red line pulsing normally, as though nothing had happened. "'He is back,' said the nurse. "'Yes, I can see that,' said Lydia. "'No thanks to you.' She went to Miguel's side and brought her wrist to his mouth, only to see she had stopped bleeding. She looked at her wrist and saw that the wound had closed. 
Then she remembered how Underwood had bitten Cynthia and secreted some sort of coagulant saliva to close the wound afterwards. Curious, she swirled her tongue around her mouth and found she too now had a slightly more viscous saliva in her mouth. Interesting. She was about to bite her wrist open afresh when Miguel opened his eyes. Lydia! Miguel? Lydia cupped his face in her hands. You're back! Oh, darling, are you all right? Miguel licked his lips and tasted blood. He looked down at himself and saw blood all over the bed. What? What happened? Where am I? You're in hospital, darling. Underwood put you into a coma. But the blood... Am I bleeding? No, she smiled. No, that's all mine. I gave you my blood to try and revive you, but you died. Jesus, you scared the life out of me. Died? Miguel looked at the heartbeat monitor. I... I don't understand. Lydia smiled. Really? Don't you feel just the slightest bit... different? Different? Taste the blood, Miguel. Miguel's tongue licked his lips. Then his eyes met hers in astonishment. I... I am a vampire? Yes, said Lydia, putting a hand on the nurse's shoulder. And I think it's time you had your first meal. And so, Miguel joins Lydia in the ranks of the Nosferatu, her first vampire creation. But will he be her last? Will she have her diabolical revenge on David? And who is this old flame, James Harrington of MI6? All will be revealed in time, listeners, in the ongoing adventure of Underwood and Flinch Underground. The music you're listening to is Ahmad Armour by Farid Farjad, courtesy of Taranay Records, specialists in Persian music. Buy the track online at Amazon or iTunes, or simply follow the links on my websites, mikebennettauthor.com and underwoodandflinch.com. And so, there we are, ladies and gentlemen, Season 4, Episode 2, and I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back in your ears again next week with the next thrilling instalment in which we return to London and the storyline of Damo and Rose. When last we met them, Rose was showing Damo her home, including a hideous rat swarm, affectionately known as Oddfellow. All to look forward to next time in Underwood and Flinch. Until then... Have a great week and farewell.